0: Satan has a plan. Our demonic adversary follows a scheme by which he repeatedly attacks the followers of Christ. Some Christians seem to be ignorant of the fact that Satan wages war against the faith and wages war against their faith. The Apostle Paul was no such Christian. He was well aware of this challenge and lived under the knowledge of this challenge. He exhorted the Corinthian believers not to be, and I quote here, outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. I wonder as I read that verse, am I aware of the designs of Satan? Are you aware of his schemes? Are we as a church in the know on how Satan attacks the faith. Do we have an an adequate understanding of how he attacks, where he attacks, and are we equipped to withstand his faith-crushing assaults? There may be a number of ways to properly articulate Satan's schemes, but we should understand that there are at least three strategies that Satan employs. I have this for you here graphically just to uh, identify but the first and the obvious is persecution Satan uses unbelievers to oppress and abuse Christians to seek to crush their faith on the opposite end of that spectrum a second satanic strategy is what we might just say it call immorality in in the most general sense of the word in this approach Unbelievers do not fight Christians, they warmly welcome us to join their sensual and worldly ways. There's an invitation here, come on in and be with us. Do you see the difference between these two? Persecution to crush believers, to beat them into submission, and immorality on the other hand to join in the sinful ways of the world, to embrace the spirit of the age and Enticing us to pursue fleshly pleasures, selfish ambitions, materialistic greed, and the like. There's a third satanic strategy that seems to mediate between and even binds these first two together, and that is the strategy of false doctrine, of false teaching. False teaching tends to share a more subtle, enticing nature with the immorality, the call of the world to worldliness. False teaching appeals to our mind. It seems to uh, present the truth, or we wouldn't buy into it. People wouldn't embrace it. It tells us perhaps what we want to hear. In persecution, we're not hearing what we want to hear. With the enticement of the world to the fleshly desires, we do hear what we want to hear. And in false doctrine, we hear what we want to hear on some level. On the other hand, false doctrine has an equally sinister quality with persecution. Without overstating the distinction, as we just look at this chart for a moment, 1 Peter emphasizes which of these three? Certainly, in some level, all three of these aspects are there, but certainly the emphasis falls on persecution. The believers to whom Peter writes are suffering abuse and opposition. It's about persecution, largely. And again, all three are probably involved in all of Satan's attack. Second Peter puts the stress on false teaching. Again, not to overemphasize this distinction, but to point to just an emphasis, a lean in the book of Second Peter. We'll be looking now, as we work our way in this series through the book of Second Peter, looking at uh, the bond between false teaching and the believers to whom Peter writes, and the bond indeed between false teaching and moral corruption. Now, when I talk about false teaching, when Peter writes about false doctrine, he's talking about those who present themselves as Christians. They believe in Jesus Christ on some level. Now, there's false doctrine and false teaching. Of course, it does not believe in Jesus Christ. But for the most part, the false teaching that we find in the New Testament that's addressed there are people who say they are followers of Christ and here's the truth. And what they say does not accord with true doctrine, with the true teaching of Christ. First Peter stresses our need to live godly lives in a world that is hostile to us, to persevere in the faith against people who persecute the faith. Second Peter stresses our calling to withstand false teaching, which always proves morally corrupting. Under the pressures of persecution, there is also, of course, an enticement to immorality, to unfaithfulness, in the sense of saying, if we just will do what people ask us to do, we won't receive so much attention. They won't oppress us so much if we just live the way the world lives. But in some sense, there's more of an intensity in this direction under false teaching. False teaching always produces corrupt living. Peter will bring this out in numerous ways. He starts his letter, however, with the strong assurance that God has equipped us with all necessary provision to withstand Satan's attacks against our faith. This is a word we need to hear as a church today. I need to hear as a believer in Christ. Think on this as we put down a deep root and stake into this very significant truth. God has equipped us with all necessary provision to withstand Satan's attacks on our faith, including false doctrine. Before we focus on these larger truths, and even indeed on the truths of verses 3 and 4, which are at the center of this statement, uh, we look at the opening greeting first of all, and here I think we find information that is vital to us, as we always do in the greetings of the New Testament epistles. But here we find our standing in the battle for faith. Our standing, where we stand, how we are positioned in this battle for faith. The author of the letter is revealed in verse 1. You'll notice there, Second Peter 1 and verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Your version, if you have a different version from the ESV, may say Simon Peter. We're a bit more familiar with that. It's just the, the uh, Hebrew form is Simeon. The Greek form is Simon Peter. Same individual, of course, and he is indeed an apostle one commissioned by Christ to speak with authority to the church. And yet, you notice this apostle sees himself how? He sees himself as Christ's servant. Freed from slavery to sin and bound to his gracious Master, this is a bondage of joy. This is a bondage of liberty. A servant of Jesus Christ, as Christ's servant, He occupies an honored position. He's been commissioned by Christ to serve and to carry on the gospel. Peter addresses now his readers in verse 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Here's that standing to which I've referred. We know nothing definitive about these people. They knew Peter. They had received an earlier letter from him. Many assume that's 1 Peter. We cannot really prove that. It might be. It could be a letter that just isn't found in the the, uh, corpus of Scripture. But Peter sees these believers as having obtained a faith of equal standing to his. And that's significant. How do you read the word obtained? Here's where English sometimes gets us in a little bit of trouble. When I think of we've obtained a faith, we might think in terms of achieved or earned. This is a faith that I've gained by my efforts. I've obtained it. But the Greek word actually is used typically to receive by lot. So you remember in Luke chapter 1 and verse 9, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, he was chosen by lot to serve in the temple. That's the same Greek word here, obtained. He obtained the opportunity to serve in the temple. You remember in Acts chapter 1 and verse 17, after Judas died, there was need to replace him as as an apostle among the twelve. And Matthias has chosen how? He obtained by lot the opportunity to serve Christ as apostle. Same Greek word. So, like Peter, we have been granted by God the honor of sharing the same faith as the apostles. It's not a faith we've achieved. But it's an honor to which we've been called, an honor for which we have been chosen by Christ. That's the significance of the word obtained, or as Peter puts it in his first first epistle, elected to this place by God in His grace. On whose merits, on what basis do we enjoy this standing in faith? How do we have this standing? What does it say in verse 1? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The basis of the gift of faith is Christ's righteousness, not ours. Now, there may be someone here this morning, and that will be, by the grace of God, a life-transforming concept. A righteousness that comes by God's doing. It is an alien righteousness to us. It's provided not by our own goodness and effort, but by God's goodness and effort and love for us. He writes to those who have equal standing with ours, who have obtained this faith by what God has done Indeed, what the Savior, Jesus Christ, has done. By the rules of Greek grammar, we have, we're assured here that Peter is referring to Jesus as God. There's one concept here, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One person is in view here in verse 1. In verse 2, he continues, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Here, the reference is to the Father and the Son, again by rules of Greek grammar but grace and peace we know are common in Christian greetings drawing attention to the results of our salvation but notice that Peter stresses here that God's grace and peace are multiplied by what they're multiplied by our knowledge of the Lord you see that there at the end or in in uh, verse 2 by in the knowledge of God our father and of Jesus our Lord is the idea Knowledge will become a key concept in the book. And doesn't that follow? Makes sense. False doctrine is about thinking. It's about ideas. It's about belief. And so knowledge is going to become a key concept in Peter's writings. Doctrine always pertains to what we know and what we believe to be true. An accurate knowledge of who Jesus is What He has done and what He is doing to save us is crucial to our growth as Christians. We must know certain ideas and believe those ideas. Grammatically, this verse, unlike the end of verse 1, as I mentioned, distinguishes between the Father and the Son. But this knowledge of the triune God is essential to our salvation. So Peter stresses that all who have placed saving faith in Jesus share in this equal standing in faith. A faith we have received by Christ's righteousness. Key concept. And now Peter comes to the strong word about our provision for the battle. Here is our standing. We've received this grace. We've received this faith. Now the provision. I think verses 3 and 4 are among some of the most important and encouraging words in the New Testament. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, these words are powerful. They're very significant to our life. As Peter prepares to address the menace of false doctrine, it's not unimportant that he starts with this trumpet blast, announcing the provision of God in our lives to withstand the attacks of Satan. He announces here the all-sufficient provision with which God equips us to persevere in the battle for faith. So let's just take some moments here and soak in the wonder and the faith-building strength. Verses 3 and 4. As we reflect then secondly on our provision for the battle of faith. Verse 3. Peter writes, and we're going to take it just phrase by phrase here as we work down through these two verses and then... Spend some time in thinking through the application to our lives. But he says, first of all, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Have you been saved by trusting in the gospel? Does God's Spirit bear witness with your spirit that yes, I am a child of God. If this is the case, then at the moment you were redeemed, God's power bestowed upon you everything you will ever need and could ever have for eternal life and godly living. We've been singing about that today. You put it together, think back on what we've been singing and you'll see this. God did not give us a half package. He gave us the whole deal. In Christ, we have everything necessary and everything that even could be to grant us eternal life and to empower in us godly living. If you say, I'm missing some things. I just don't have what other people have. The only thing that you could possibly be missing is a relationship with Christ. That's all. If you know Christ as your Savior, if you've been truly regenerated, you have the whole package in your relationship with Him. Books can help us grow in godliness. Praying can help. Seminars can help. Counsel can help. The local church is designed by God to help. But nothing can be added to what you already have been given past tense in Christ. There's an amazingly large and influential industry of Christian teaching that continues to tell you you don't have a full package. You need this experience. Here's this key idea that no one knew about until I came and sold it. You've got it all in Christ. Know that. Be thankful for that. Go from this place today saying, this is God's promise to me. I have everything that pertains to eternal life and godliness in my relationship with Christ. That is a significant truth. We need to grasp it. As verse 3 continues, we see that this divine power which has given, supplied, equipped us with everything pertaining to life and godliness comes through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Or... I think probably better, by His own glory and excellence. Through the knowledge of Him. Now this is an amazing claim. It's not by what I do, or on the basis of who I know, that I'm granted this provision. This provision comes through the knowledge of Him who has called us. Now please understand, when you read that idea in the New Testament that God calls people, do not get the idea that it's merely an invitation. The calling here, I think, could be better related to the call of Lazarus to rise from the grave. It is a call which effects what God intends. Calling is a reference to his effectual call that awakens us to the gospel. Through the knowledge of him who called us, when Christ presents to us the gospel and our spirit is awakened to respond to it, in that and through that, we have his divine power, or we have all that pertains to life and godliness. We receive that. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God, and God uses that Word to awaken us to eternal life. Calling us to His own glory and excellence. Again, I think should be taken by His own glory and excellence. That is, God affects our conversion by revealing to us His glory and His moral excellence. Do you know Christ as your Savior? I think we should all appropriately... Properly be testing ourselves on that question. I don't think we should become obsessed with it. I don't think it should be a matter that should never be settled for. Indeed, we are given knowledge and in our relationship with Christ, the 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 capacity to know that we have eternal life. But having said that, and as we test that idea, one of the crucial evidences of genuine salvation is that you see the beauty of Christ. You are awakened to his moral excellence. You see his goodness as convincing as it is to us in our sin, as convicting as it is to us in our sin. We are attracted to Christ's moral excellence. It exposes our sin. At the same time, it is a source of encouragement and joy, something in which we rejoice. By which, so it is through the knowledge of Him who called us, by His own glory and excellence, verse 4, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. I think the connection is that God's saving grace includes granting us all that pertains to life and godliness and making us recipients of His very great and precious promises. Reconciling us to Himself, then God promises what? He promises to be with us and to never forsake us. He promises to liberate us from sin and secure for us a home with Him in heaven. He promises to transform us into the likeness of Christ at His coming. And the promises just continue as we read through the New Testament text. And as we look at life on this side of the cross... These precious, these very great promises come through our knowledge of this One who by His glory and excellence grants us these promises. As verse 4 continues, what is the implication? What is the purpose of all of this? So that, the middle of verse 4, so that through them, through these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. You might discern there two ideas, two separate sides of a single coin, so to speak. So that we become partakers of God's nature. Now, is that saying that we become gods? Of course not. Is it saying that we become all that God is or like Him in every capacity? No. We will always be created, limited beings. But, it means that we will one day share God's sinless moral excellence and reflect His glory throughout eternity. I'm ready for that day. Isn't that a great prospect? That someday, not yet, the process has begun, but someday we will share His moral excellence of sinlessness. That day is coming. That is His promise. Secondly, the other side of the coin, we have escaped the moral corruption that marks those who remain in the flesh. That is, those who are separated from God. Have you, in your personal journey, have you come to the point where you see Christ as a glorious Savior? as one of splendor and greatness? Have you placed your full trust in His death to pay the penalty of your sins? Have you placed your trust in His defeat of death by rising from the dead for the forgiveness of your sins? If you say, I really don't think I have, I have no concept of that, or you would say definitively, no, I've not. If if I speak to you in this moment, This verse tells you that your sinful desires are a moral corruption that will eventually separate you from God forever. That's what Peter is declaring here. That's what we as a church have come to believe as we've seen the moral excellence of our Savior. Those desires that lead you to lie and to lust, to be selfish and bitter, to be jealous and envious, to be proud, those desires that pull you away from loving God with all of your heart and loving other things as only God should be loved, those responses and desires deep within you are a moral corruption. They're killing you. What Peter says here is very significant to grasp. By our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and His saving grace in our lives, we can be rescued from this moral corruption. We can be destined by Christ and by His work to eventually be sinless as we meet Him. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you have then, past tense, escaped the ultimate corruption that evil desires produce. You're not sinless, not yet, but you have been delivered from this corruption. Little by little, you are being reclaimed by Christ and remade into His image. That's a project that's going on right now through the Holy Spirit's power. And in this we rejoice, and it's why we're here today, to sit under the power of of these great and precious promises under the power of the divine Word to transform and to change us, little by little. Now next week, Lord willing, we will consider a much lengthier section uh, in this first chapter, but I'd like to stop here to reflect on the significance of verses 3 and 4 a bit further. The significance to our faith, the significance to the project and the message of 2 Peter. Satan has a plan to destroy our faith. If we take that threat seriously, if we strive not to be outwitted by his schemes, it is vital that we realize certain key ideas. And the first is fairly obvious here, but let's think on it. Our relationship with Christ provides everything we need to withstand Satan's every assault against our faith. Working that out in our lives is absolutely vital to the faith. We rightly emphasize, I believe as a church, the sufficiency of God's written Word. In the Bible, we have all the truth necessary to walk faithfully with God. We must equally recognize the sufficiency of our relationship with Christ. United to Him, indwelt by His Spirit, we are fully equipped with all things that pertain to eternal life and to godly living. We have a full package. We're fully equipped in Christ. This is significant. And it really directs the orientation of our Christian walk. Imagine an ancient Israelite general. He stands before his troops and says, I want you all to fight just like me. And you take a step back and you look at the scene. And all around him are these Israelite soldiers wearing robes and on their feet are sandals and in their hands are sticks and stones. And you look at this general and he's seated on a war stallion and he is equipped with the latest technology of armor from the Roman Empire and he has in his hand and at his side weaponry that is state-of-the-art and he heads off in the attack and says, fight like I do. And what are you going to say? There's no way in the world they can fight like you do. They're ill-equipped. They don't have a full package. You do. How can you ask that of them? Well, our Master is not like that general. Our Master does not leave us empty and send us on blind spiritual quests to discover spiritual armor out there somewhere. Our Master equips us with all we need to withstand Satan, to persevere in the faith, and to live godly lives. It is in knowing Christ, through His Word, what has been revealed about Him, that I have this full equipment. Now, no, we come today as, as a fallen people. We come today as those who struggle. And you may be here caught in sin. There's a sin struggle that's ongoing in your life and you just say, I don't have the equipment. Maybe it's marriage challenges, a lack of wisdom, spiritual lethargy that it just seems that something's not there. Now, I I can't speak to you personally, individually, and say whether or not you know Christ in a saving way. But assuming that you have been born again, this is, whatever you're dealing with in these struggles, it is a struggle of faith. It is at its heart the challenge of believing God. Of believing the promises that He has revealed. Of putting your trust and your confidence in what God has said. This is at the heart of that battle. At the heart of it is not discovering armor out there and equipment out there that no one knows about. That you somehow need to find something that you've never thought of before, maybe that other people haven't thought of before, or certainly that your dumb church hasn't thought of before because they're not helping you out with this. What it really is at its heart is a battle of faith in what God has said. That can be discouraging to some. I'm still struggling with this sin. I'm still struggling with this problem. We're not making any progress. But I hope that it would also be a source of great encouragement. In your relationship with Jesus Christ, you have everything that pertains to life and godliness. Everything. The good side of that is you don't have to go looking for the armor. He has equipped you with all that you need. Indeed, this promise is essential. Do you believe it? Verse 3, His divine power has granted past tense to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This leads to the second idea of application. This provision is received, notice, through our knowledge of Christ as Lord and Savior and our knowledge of God's Word. To be fully equipped for eternal life and godliness necessitates knowing something. We must know the historical reality of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. We must know who Jesus truly is and what His death and resurrection accomplishes. I think on this matter, many miss the boat. They have a conception of a Jesus they want. And they demand that Jesus be that person. That's called idolatry. You have a false God because you've erected who He has to be. And you want Him to be what you have designed Him to be. What? has the Bible revealed about Jesus? Do you know the true Christ? Do you know of His death and resurrection and what they've accomplished? Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. It comes by knowing God's promises and trusting them. To put it in personal terms, we have to talk to God. We need to hear the information that He has communicated to us. We need to know this truth and we need to rest in this truth. On numerous occasions, I've asked people how they know that they are saved, how they know heaven is their home and Christ is their Lord. And the answer is so many times has been the recounting of some religious experience. This happened to me. I had this really warm experience. Listen, a genuine testimony of faith is not based primarily on my religious experience. It is based on a conscious recognition of who Christ is and what He has done historically to atone for my sin. To know God, to be equipped with faith-preserving power, is to know certain truths and to place your trust in those truths. The Gospel is, at the end of the day, good news. It's a report about something that has happened, something that Christ achieved for us. The key is not my journey to Christ, my religious experience, my spiritual techniques or existential conquests. The key is that Jesus Christ has acted in my behalf. He has done something. Historically, theologically, there is something that Christ has accomplished for me. And it is through the promise of God to us in Christ that we are united to Him and eternally delivered from sin. So, when someone asks you, How do you know that you're saved? Assuming you have been born again, are a genuine believer, how do you know that you're saved? Emphasize what Jesus has done. Center on that. I'm not saying that personal experiences are irrelevant. They certainly are not. But emphasize what Jesus has done. Not merely what's happened in your life, because what He has done is what's all important. Live then in active faith in the sufficiency of His accomplishments. I think there's a balancing thought to the second point. Let me say it this way, number three, this knowledge is morally transformational. Or you might want to use the word ethically transformational. This knowledge transforms us. It changes us. If the knowledge we have is genuine, the definitive evidence will not be knowledge we record on paper, but a transformed life. So in my second point, as much as it is off track to point simply to some existential experience, that that's where it's all centered. No, it's, it's centered in our knowledge of what Christ has done. On the other side of the equation, it is not centered merely in factual knowledge. Genuine saving faith is centered in facts that we believe, and in believing those facts, our lives are changed. We are transformed morally, slowly, incrementally to be sure, but actually. We will struggle with sin until we meet Christ, but if our knowledge of God's promises is merely factual, it does not change our lives, we do not possess genuine faith. I think this is one of the areas that Peter's going to hit on pretty hard in this book false teaching corrupts people morally it's no, it's not doodling with ideas you, you can just mess around with false belief false belief always corrupts and so it is absolutely sinister and concerning we must know what false doctrine is we must discern it we must run from it by embracing the true doctrine but it will always corrupt morally I believe a reading of the book of 2 Peter reveals that the false teachers taught a form of libertarian Christianity. By that, I mean they excused their practice of sinful, immoral, and destructive behaviors, resting in the fact that they had found true doctrine. So there were certain ideas and thoughts that they came into contact with, began to teach, and began to draw others into that teaching. It was all about the teaching. But what the teaching did was it masked immoral behavior, a godless lifestyle, and Peter says that's not the real deal. If you have the truth, it will change you. It will transform you. It will slowly conform you to the likeness of Christ. The knowledge that actually saves, Peter will emphasize, is a knowledge that changes the way that we live It liberates us from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires, verse 4. Is this power at work in our lives? Is it at work in yours and in mine? Do we see the evidences of the Spirit of God changing us? For the young, for those very much caught in sinful desires, this takes a while. Don't be overwhelmed with discouragement when you look at your life and you're 16 years of age or so and you're saying, I'm not seeing a lot. Keep pressing on in the faith. Continue to trust in the promises of God. Continue to learn in knowledge who God is, what Christ has done, and how it changes your life. Slowly, incrementally, As you have genuinely trusted Christ, you will begin to see more and more. I'm changing. And it's not simply that I'm maturing physically. And so there's some things we all set aside, thankfully, just because we grow up a little bit. But it's something different. There are sins that are so attractive to me that I'm fighting and I'm making progress. There are sins that are so attractive to me and yet the power is being loosened. There is truth that was, I was dull to it in the past and now it enlivens me, it excites me. I find in it great joy. And slowly, little by little, we are liberated from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Is this power at work in your life? Has God liberated you from the bondage to sin? Is He liberating you from this corruption? As we gather by God's grace in homes today, some of us are able to do that and we'll be gathering. Let's work some of this out together. As we gather in home groups, indeed, this is one of the opportunities that we have to take the truths of God's Word, the promises of God's Word, and to say and to discuss how they apply to my personal life. How do they apply to us as a church? How do we work them out? As we continue to make this progress in our walk with Christ, this is the reason for the Bible preaching and teaching of the church. This is one of the reasons why we assemble each Lord's Day. We come here to vote, saying Jesus is Lord. We come here to identify with His people. We come here to be purified by His Word. And there is a purification of the Word that needs to be taking place in our lives personally and individually on a daily basis by the grace of God. But there is also a corporate gathering where we wash ourselves in the pure word and where the promises of God are seen. Those promises change us. Those truths about who Christ is transform us. This knowledge is utterly essential, but it is not A knowledge that ends with ideas it's a knowledge that ends with a changed life so if you're not consistently taking in the message of the word of god you are not fueling the sanctification transformational process that the spirit of god intends for you as a christian But if you are taking in the Word of God formalistically, it's just a good habit of life, it's something once in a while I get a little correction or something something of a buzz. Most of the time I kind of filter it out, don't pay a lot of attention to it. Or I'm gaining a lot of ideas that I really believe and trust in I'm getting my doctrinal ducks in a row. But if this truth is not transforming who you are, is not having an effect in your daily life and in your moral walk with Christ, there's something wrong. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This comes through the knowledge of Him who called us. And in calling us, He has granted to us precious and great promises so that through these promises we will be morally transformed into the image of Christ escaping the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's not a message you got on Channel 5. That's not a message you got this week on talk radio. That's not a message you found on the internet with some talk site. But this is the truth of God that changes and steers and transforms us. We need this. And we need to work it out in our lives. And may we do that by the grace of God. Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, how rich we are. We don't even hardly know how to respond to the richness of this trumpet blast, announcing your provision, your all-sufficient, complete provision in Christ for your people. We thank you. We give you praise. I pray that you will aid us as we work out these concepts in smaller groups this afternoon. I pray for those who are not part of that project particularly and for all of us that we will continue to recognize the significance of Your promises and of Your Word and its transformational power. And I pray, Father, again for anyone who is caught in the moral corruption of this world and has not received the saving grace of Christ. I pray, Father, that this would be a day of salvation for indeed it is. Today is the day. And I pray, God, that you would bring to saving faith those who are separated from Christ. I ask, Father, that in your mercy, you will do a unique word, a unique work by this washing with the word. It is in our Savior's name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. We sang the first two verses, standing together, of complete in thee. These words are so fitting to the text that we've looked at today. Let's think on them again as we sing the third and the first verses. Complete in thee, no more shall sin thy grace has conquered reign within. Let's sing together in response. Complete in Thee, no more shall sin.
1: Thy grace has conquered, reign within. Thy blood shall bid the tempter flee, and I shall stand complete in Thee. Yea, justified, O blessed thought, and sanctified salvation wrought thy blood hath pardoned bought for me and glorified i too shall be dear savior when before thy bar all tribes and tongues assembled are among the chosen i shall be thy right hand complete in thee Yea, justified, O blessed thought, and sanctified, salvation wrought. Thy blood hath poured and bought for me, and glorified, I too shall be.
0: Amen. Let's bow in just a word of, or a moment of meditation, as we consider God's word together. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And God's people said, "Amen. Let me say just three brief things to you as a church. Uh, the first is maybe obvious for us, but we gather in uh, homes this afternoon. No evening service here tonight. I'm not sure anybody would be here, at least what they're threatening will happen. And for those who are not Minnesotans, this is a little rare, okay? Please remember that. I was afraid that we'd come at 20 below zero and there'd be nobody here. Everybody moved to somewhere else. But this is, this is something else. We're getting hit with it, aren't we? But there is no service tonight, and that probably works nicely with the weather, uh, but we will gather in in home groups. If you would like to participate in that and have not been included in that, you're not being excluded. We just don't know about your desire. There is a group here at the building that meets on on this first Sunday of the month as we talk through and apply our... A passage and work with each other to build each other up in the faith. We'd, we'd love for you to join us. Please let us know of your interest and we'll connect you uh, with a group here at the building. Secondly, on January the 12th, next Sunday, in the evening service, will be our time of examination of Eric Queen uh, as as a uh, future elder, something that we've talked through as a church, Uh, together for some time, something that I think far more importantly we've been recognizing over the last several years, that that, uh, this young man has um, stood forward as one who continues to shepherd people. And we're thankful for the Lord's leading in his life and his willingness to serve us as a church and pour in the hours of time that are necessary to give this kind of leadership and direction. We're grateful for this opportunity, but we need to hear as a church our recognition of Eric and of his work among us and hear testimony to uh, who he is as a shepherd, and to make a decision as a church to come to united position on uh, his service in this way. One way that you can participate in the most significant perhaps, is to pray and to come next Sunday evening and to be part of that uh, process. The other is to submit questions that you would have that would allow us to know of Eric's fittedness. Um, His uh, favorite football team is irrelevant. Ask him that personally if you wish. Don't submit that on a sheet of paper. Uh, A lot of questions will be irrelevant that are just personal in nature, but we know Eric well enough. Uh, But uh, what does he believe where is he putting his faith, his trust, his confidence, what does he believe, perhaps about uh, certain issues of our day that pertain to Christian life? Write the question out, email it to uh, put it in, in uh, Paul Purdue's box or email a question to him this week. And we'll pool those and try to uh, um, summarize them and present everyone's question that's asked in that form. We may have opportunity to ask him questions on the spot next week. We'll make him sweat a little bit that way. Uh, But uh, if if possible, we'd we'd encourage you to to write them out so that we can uh, put as many questions together as possible uh, for Eric to answer next Sunday evening. Be in prayer for him as he prepares this week. And then, finally, we have one of the most significant events of our year coming this Friday night and Saturday morning. And that is our all-night prayer meeting. In everything that we do this year, we seek to bathe it in prayer. We pray globally for the spread of the gospel and specific people throughout the world. We pray over every event that we trust, and anticipate will take place this coming year and over every person that attends our church. We need the whole night uh, to do these things. You don't necessarily need to be here the whole night. It'll be amazing to you if you are, how fast 10 hours goes. You'll be pretty much shocked. Now, some of them are hard to live through, but uh, they do go quickly. There's an immense task in prayer, and for one-hour segments through the entire evening and into the Saturday morning hour, we take a specific emphasis. Come for an hour. Come for two. Come for three. Come when you fall asleep. We'll wake you up and send you home, if you need to, we'll, we'll even escort you home. But uh, do whatever works for you. There's no pressure. There's no demand. But there's a few people out there that I think have been thinking maybe through the past years, I just don't get it. I don't, I don't feel comfortable coming to that. Just come. We welcome you with open arms. And if you can make it for 45 minutes, great. Uh, we will be thrilled to have you here for 45 minutes. But you can start anywhere from 9 p.m. Probably 5 a.m. is about as late as you want to arrive but we'll leave. We'll be out of here by 6 a.m. But also, if you're not able to join us, that's not something that you're going to do. Pray with us and uh, pray for those who are laboring through that night. But again, knowing we want to bathe everything this church does in prayer. We are utterly dependent on Christ. If He doesn't go with us, we have nothing. It doesn't matter what external success we may seem to realize, we have no